Good evening and welcome comrades and friends. It's my honor to share this hour with you as your host. Uh, my name is Scott Williams and I'm an organizer with the International Action Center, an anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist organization dedicated to telling the truth about the crimes of U.S. imperialism. For those of you who may be less familiar with the IAC, I'll give you a little background. Uh, we were founded in 1992 with Ramsey Clark, the former U.S. Attorney General, along with many other anti-war and community activists who opposed the first U.S. war in Iraq. And since then, uh, you know, we've been at the forefront against every U.S. maneuver to recolonize countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. We organize demonstrations, direct actions, picket lines, community forums, speakouts, war crimes tribunals. We publish books. We travel all across the world to tell the truth. And tonight, we're particularly excited to focus our attention on the U.S. war in Syria. For many of us, the U.S. has been at war with Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Palestine, and many other countries for the majority, if not all, of our lives. The gargantuan, horrific crimes committed by the U.S. and its allies against the peoples of Southwestern Asia and Africa have become unfortunately ignored and forgotten, even as we have killed millions of people through sanctions, wars, and occupations, which could only be referred to as genocide. Yet the people continue to rise up against imperialism. We salute the heroic resistance of the Palestinian people which in recent weeks has focused public attention on the crimes of empire, of Zionism, and, of, and, the, and the crimes connected there to the U.S. empire. Mass demonstrations of millions of people across the world have come out in solidarity and have refocused the conversations around white supremacy, colonialism, and empire, and pointed the finger at the United States. Meanwhile, on May 26th, the Syrian people marked a massive victory in their struggle against these same imperialists in the United States and Israel. Why was this event, this victory, completely ignored by the U.S. media and even the progressive left? I want to say just first of all, I'm excited to be here because in 2014, I had the great honor to travel to Syria as a part of a delegation of 32, representing 32 different countries who witnessed the previous election in 2014. At that time, I learned so much from the people of Syria about the nature of U.S. foreign policy as it pivoted from occupations to more covert forms of war. I learned about the strengths of U.S. imperial media, which, as Malcolm X says, would have you hating the oppressed and loving the oppressor. While President Assad's victory then in 2014 was huge and legitimate, the events between 2014 and now I've seen a massive escalation in attacks from the right-wing militias funded by the United States. But the Syrian people continue to rise up and win back their country. How did this happen? Let's talk about it tonight. We've come here to de demystify, to connect, to raise consciousness about the connections between the Syrian people and their struggle for self-determination against U.S. occupations and colonialism, with the struggle of workers and oppressed in the U.S. and across the world. We want to make sure that no crime of the U.S. goes unexposed and no story of resistance goes untold. And let's be clear, this isn't just resistance. This is victory. And how many victories do we get? This is a big deal. So without further commentary from me, I, I want to welcome an incredible group of panelists who have come back from Syria about five days ago, still feeling the jet lag, but they're here to be with you tonight. And they're going to be speaking about their eyewitness experience of the Syrian elections. And most importantly, of the Syrian people's resistance and victory against the U.S. imperialism. So first off, I'm really excited to welcome Johnny Achi, who is the co-founder of the Arab Americans for Syria. Welcome, Johnny. Hello, Scott. Hello, everyone. Next up, I'm going to welcome Kobe Guillory, who is the co-chair of the Chicago Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression. Welcome, Kobe. Thank right. you. We also would like to welcome Ted Kelly from the International Action Center, and he's also a co-editor of Tear Down the Walls. Thanks, comrades. Good evening, everyone. And lastly, but not least, we have Wyatt Miller from the Anti-War Committee in Minneapolis. Welcome, Wyatt. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, great. So just to say, you know, 
we're so excited to hear about your delegation, about what you've done and, you know, and, and kind of share your experiences. So let's go right into this. My first question is for Jenny. So over the past decade, we've heard a lot about Syria. We've heard about the Arab Spring. We've heard about a supposed civil war, about chemical weapons, about the rise of the Islamic State and other forces. And, and we've also seen several major U.S. bombings by the Obama and Trump administrations. But for the past few years, it's been pretty quiet. Can you catch us up on, you know, basically what's been going on and, um, and, and what's the real narrative about what's happened in Syria? And then why did you go on this trip? Why now? So go ahead, Johnny. Sure. Um, allow me just to briefly to talk about the roots of the problem. I like to always start with that before we go in. Syria, the reason was um, targeted is because it's you, you talked about resistance. Syria has been resistive. Syria has been anti-imperialist from since the 1950s when the West took the side of Israel against the Palestinians. We had no choice but to turn east. 2003, after the uh, United States entered Iraq uh, or bombed Iraq, Colin Powell went into Damascus and he gave an ultimatum to President Bashar Assad, stop your support to the Lebanese Hezbollah and to the Palestinian resistance or else we're going to be coming after you. That was the message since 2003. And of course, we sent him back to the airport, probably with a cap. No, no one even accompanied him to the airport. And the answer was from Bashar said, I can't do that. that. I'm not allowed to do that. My people will not allow me to do this. This is our national heritage, you know, the Palestinian cause. Everything that Syria is going through today is because of the Palestinian cause, make no doubt about it. And if we do talk later about the Palestinian move camp and everything that had happened through this war, it won't change a, a beat. It won't change our compass. Our compass has always been Palestine or the axis of resistance. The axis of resistance has been the, the target of the United States and the West to break since before even September 11th. They use September 11 as an excuse to go into the Middle East and break that resistance. They almost succeeded, and it was serious turn and was supposed to be the final piece before they attack Iran, if they needed at that time to attack Iran. Because if Syria is gone, Hezbollah is gone, and there will be no support for the Palestinian, Palestinian will be left alone. The war on Lebanon did not succeed in 2006, so we come to the Arab Springs. And the whole world was fooled by it. The rise of what they wanted to call political Islam by the West to take over the Middle East, just to have a puppet regime in those countries. You know, when you take arms against your own country, you cannot be moderate anymore. And these rebels took arm immediately as if it had been planned for a lot earlier than 2011. We saw right through it, uh, International Action Center, I, I, I gotta give chapeau. They were the first organizations to stand by us we were alone in 2011, completely alone. The voices of the Syrians who were patriot and saw right through what's happening, we could not get anyone to support us except International Action Center. For From the minute we, we started, Ramsey Clark said, Johnny, they're going after you. The axis of resistance, they're breaking you down. It's going to be a proxy war. He, he called it dead on exactly what was happening. And sure enough, we fast forward and I'll break it down in three stages. You mentioned what happened. We haven't heard much since the last few years because we went through three stages. 2011 to 2013, the end of 13, was, of course, when Syria was losing territories left and right, where the whole world was flocking into Syria from 84 different nationalities, jihadi, calling for a jihad or holy war against the infidel. I mean, everyone wanted a piece of Syria. Saudi Arabia on one side, financing and facilitating for the Wahhabist regime, while the Qatari and the Turkish for the Salafist Islamists. And then you have the United States has their own group. Israel had their own group and, and Turkey. And I mean, it just, just it was just a mess. When Obama decided in 2013 to go in, after, of course, there was now world admission that there is terrorism in Syria, world admission that there is people chopping heads, uh, you know, bishops being kidnapped, nuns being kidnapped. There was just no way that the world can deny the fact that Syria is fighting terrorism on its own land. Syrians are in Syria. The Syrian army is liberating cities or def defending cities, not attacking outside a, uh, cities. So at that moment, Obama decided to carry a war on ISIS. Amazingly uh, funny, the first nations to join this alliance were Saudi Arabia, Qatar, 
Turkey. I mean, it's just all these same countries that were financing ISIS and different, they jumped on the wagon, they want to fight ISIS now. From August 13, when Obama decided to fight ISIS till almost middle of 14, ISIS grew its territory from about 30% to almost 60%, you know, with all these weapons. And I've been, I used to go on radio and just say, you know, I've shown videos of hundreds of forerunners, Toyotas in the desert, convoys that carrying weapons, stealing Syrian oil. How can you miss these and you go bomb by mistake a Syrian post? You have three kilometers of a convoy you miss and you bomb. So most of the people that Obama bombed were civilians in Deir Zor and Raqqa and Syrian posts, could not touch ISIS for, for the life in him. So that is the stage one. Stage two in August 2014, when the Syrian government finally asked Russia to get involved. Invitation by an ally of Syria to come in, not force their way in like Obama did, bombing a sovereign country without even asking for permission. Within a month that Russia got involved, I would say 75% of the infrastructure of ISIS was destroyed. We've seen all these convoys destroyed, all the oil that they were stealing, they bombed. It was so easy. They're an easy target in the middle of a desert. They were roaming the whole time Obama's acting like he was defeating ISIS. So, yes, the Syrians paid the huge price fighting ISIS, but it was for the Russians' involvement. That turned the page. At that moment, that's when Syria started on the ground, the Syrian army liberating towns while Russians are making the big targets attacking from the air. That's when I think the Syrian army and the Syrian uh, friends started gaining ground. Fast forward to about 2016, I think in December 2016, the liberation of Aleppo was an amazing turnaround point where we can know now, feel the victory, sense the victory, where the whole world was screaming, they're going to burn Aleppo. Aleppo is going to be burned to the ground, millions of people suffering. It probably went so precise and it was a victory that in warfare, we should have been congratulated on what an amazing job was done. That Eastern Aleppo went from one million and a half to 150,000 under the occupation of these terrorist groups. They all fleed to Western and different parts. Then today it's back to a million. People are going back to Aleppo, rebuilding their homes. Any town that fell under the hands of these so-called freedom fighters, people would flee that town. They will get emptied. So the West never asked the questions, how come every time these people, they flee from these terrorists? They're supposed to be freedom fighters and they're supposed to be liberating. The United States will use the word, they liberated the town instead of saying occupy the town. And when we liberated the town, when we liberated Aleppo, they said fell under the hands of the Syrian. So the rhetoric was all used wrong for many, many years. Finally, in 2016, 17, the world, a lot of organization come on board. The truth was coming out because the Syria was able to resist long enough to prevent the war from happening, to resist long enough for the truth, for everyone on this call to starting to learn the truth about Syria, that Syria is defending its own cities from foreign jihadists that are brought in as a proxy fighters to carry on a regime change operation. Nothing about freedom or democracy that was needed in Syria. Syria, if you would take it compared to the Middle East, one of the most democratic nations. We have a parliament since 1940. We have more women in parliament than anywhere else in the world. There is no discrimination. Everyone lives equally. We don't know who's the Muslim from the Christian, from the Kurd, from the Shia. We never knew. We don't put that in the ID card like they do in Lebanon, for example. We have the free education, the free healthcare. We had no reason to revolt in such a violent fashion. Of course, that was not the narrative that was uh, was told. I'll fast forward to the very end. Uh, the reason you haven't heard much because now they turn to economic sanctions. When the war finally, they realized they could not have won that war by sending tens of thousands of jihadists and proxy fighters. They were defeated. They turned to what we call the Caesar Act. Caesar Act deprived Syrians from basic needs. Now, what we've learned about the Syrian government and the Syrian leadership just because there's a Caesar Act, they did not give up on the people. I just learned this, this trip. They're still getting most of the medical supplies that were prevented from getting, building materials that were prevented from getting. 
the government is still able to get it, but at a much, much higher cost because they have to go turn so many different corners to beat that Caesar Axe. Our neighbors would not help us. Lebanon would say, we can't help because Caesar Axe, we cannot even do any financial transaction to buy you the materials. So we have to go through so many different brokers, so many different friendly nations to be able to get, but at a much, much higher cost. The world industry is 10 times fold. The government is paying 10 times fold for basic stuff that you used to get that for almost nothing. So that prevented some expensive medication like cancer medication, where the government had cancer, free cancer hospitals with free medication for the whole Syrian citizen. Now that is kind of, they're still treating people, but they're not able to afford these very expensive medication to give them to everyone. So the Caesar Act is the last, I think, card left in the hands of the West. And that is falling apart again, because the Syrian people showed in this election that if you continue to force us to lose our president or tell us this president is bad for you, the more our enemy tells us to do something, the opposite we want to do. When, when someone has been fighting you for 50 years, tell you his person is no good for you, then we know he's good for us. So with the sanctions, with everything that's going on, Syrians believe that this president never left them. Never, he could have left. He could have. Dis- he's still there with his family, living the same lifestyle that everyone is living. We decided to have him back because if we lose him, or if he decides to resign or whatnot, that means the West have gained. And the last word I have to say, they helped us get that axis of resistance stronger than ever. Before Iraq never really communicated with Iran or Syria, so that link was already lost. You know, they were trying to bring the link between Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. Well, they just helped us regroup. Now the Syria, now Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Iran is a complete link and stronger than ever. Thank you. Well, Johnny, that is good news. And we've got to kind of explain to everybody why that's such good news. But I'm very optimistic about the potential, you know, to, to kind of push back against the empire, <laughs> that that kind of strengthening of this axis of resistance. And we've got to really connect that to what that means for people here, you know, in the United States too, why that's advantageous for us. But I will say, you know, that was an incredible kind of reworking of a narrative. I mean, we've seen questions in the chat. What about, all oh, he's bombing his people. He's doing these terrible things. You know, the reality is that people have really no idea what's going on. And, and there's really no reason to believe U.S. media tells any sort of truth about the situation because their goal is to kill this man and, and, and overtake this country and turn it into a colony. So they're going to make up all sorts of lies. We, we know that. I want to get to Kobe next. I, I read an incredible report back that you wrote in uh, Fight Back News. And uh, I wanted you to share just a bit more about your trip and tell us more about the delegation, you know, what you all did. And, um, you know, really importantly, what was the mood of the people, of the Syrian people that you met? And maybe just get into this a little bit more. You know, is this a people that are subject to a unpopular authoritarian government, like we've been told? Thank you for having me here. You know, it's it's, it's an honor to be with uh, so many amazing comrades. And, you know, I can't really take all the credit for that article because if you read it, a lot of it was direct quotes from Syrians in Damascus, in Duma, in Yarmouk. So I, I didn't need to say that much because they said I was just sharing the words that were given to me by Syrians. And, you know, what we did was we traveled around, you know, not the whole country. We didn't really have the time to do that, but we traveled sort of around the uh, Damascus area. My geography is not great, but, and you know, we, we went um, in the uh, Ghouta region. We went to Yarmouk. We went to uh, Malula and Sednaya. We visited Duma, like I said earlier, and we, of course, spoke to a lot of different people in Damascus. And it was almost surreal reading from outlets like in BBC, uh, CNN, The Guardian, AP, you know, the list goes on and on and on. You know, these outlets that are supportive of regime change, or that have been supportive of regime change. And of course, it's worth saying these are the same outlets that spread the lie that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. You know, they always told the, the American government line, no matter what, to drum up support among Americans for the next imperialist project, the next regime change project. So it was very surreal reading that Duma was the home of, you know, the rebels. That was where the, re- the resistance of the people against Assad, this like brutal dictator that, that, that they called him. 
it was weird to read that and then to actually go to Duma and talk to people there, you know, people who had fled when this Saudi-backed terrorist organization, Jaish al-Islam, was occupying their homes. They forced women to cover up. They um, were executing people for, for, you know, just being themselves. They were executing people for being gay or for being lesbian. They weren't allowing people to smoke, things like that. Versus what's happening now is that the government is helping them rebuild, where, you know, there's these electricity lines, there's water pipes, there's stores reopening. We saw a water park for children, you know, a, with like slides and there was like an arcade next to it that had been rebuilt for all these kids in the, in the neighborhoods to play in. And of course, most importantly, we spoke to a lot of different people. The narrative, of course, is that, well, the government is controlling who you can speak to, the government is controlling what people can say, blah, 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 blah. But there was no check on who I was allowed to speak to. We were all able to just walk around and talk to whoever we wanted to. You know, obviously, I don't speak Arabic, so I needed a, a translator, but the translator didn't have to be someone from the government. You know, Johnny, living in America, not a member of the Syrian government, translated some, some of the interviews. We also had a few other members of the delegation, someone from Palestine uh, and um, Paul LaRudy, you know, shout out to him, who's, on, who's not a member of the panel, but who's helped translate a lot of these interviews. And the mood that we saw from the Syrian people was one of joy and one of pride in their country. These are people who've been through a lot. You know, these are people who everyone in Syria has some kind of story of having been kidnapped by one of these terrorist organizations that Western media refers to as, as rebels. Everyone has a story of someone in their family has been executed, someone in their family has been kidnapped, their homes have been bombed. Terrible things have happened, have been done to Syria, and the U.S. government and its allies are responsible for, for doing this to these people. You know, and these people, they're aware of that. You know, they understand what effect imperialism has had on their lives. So when people come up to them, you know, and ask them, who do you support and who did this to you? You know, they're very clear on it. They understand that the Syrian Arab army came in and ended the occupation of their towns, you know, of their neighborhoods. And now, that, now they're moving in. Of course, they're going to vote for Dr. Bashar, as, as they call him. And I asked quite a few people about what do you think of um, Western media's claims that this whole election is faked and that you're actually being oppressed and you're being forced to be here. It was kind of a, a silly question. Like, you know, just being around all these people celebrating, being around kids celebrating, you know, it, I work with teenagers and it is impossible to get them to enthusiastically do something that they don't want to do. You know, if they're there, they're chanting, they're, you know, they're dancing, they're raising their fists, they're celebrating. It's, you cannot force them to do that. And there was no evidence that, there was any interest aside from them wanting to be there of their own volition. You know, the, the biggest celebration that, that we went to was in Umayyad Square. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but in this big square in the center of Damascus, it was easily 100,000 people, probably more. You know, many tens of thousands of people were there. And it was like a festival. You know, there was music, there was dancing, and I spoke to a whole bunch of people there. That's where... Most of the quotes in that article come from. And everybody was saying, this is a victory of Syrian people. You know, we don't want anybody to come and impose anything on us. This is a choice that we're making collectively because we want to be free, free and we want to be independent from U.S. imperialism. A few of the people that I spoke to, they initially didn't want to speak to me. You know, they were like, this is an American journalist. He's going to go home and tell lies about what we're saying and what, you know, what's, what's going on here. So they were very adamant about that. But you better tell the truth when you get back home. So that kind of motivated me to write that article as quickly as possible because they were saying we're here because we feel this in our soul. You know, we feel this in our blood that this is the victory for the Syrian people, and that going forward they're all collectively motivated to rebuild the country after what the U.S. and its allies have done. So the last thing I'll say, which is one of the things that. That one of those men said to me, you know, he, he was saying, like, you need to get Joe Biden to lift these sanctions because, you know, people are suffering. Like Johnny said, building materials, medicine, all these different things are not getting through to people who need them. So it's our responsibility as people living in the U.S., as the people who are closest to the heart of the empire, 
it's our responsibility to fight to get those sanctions lifted. You know, we need a very strong uh, anti-war movement in this country because the empire is very, very busy. The Syrian people got a victory, but imperialism is still alive. So, you know, we need to do everything that we can collectively in our in our numbers to stop the empire from ruining people's lives and to let people live, you know, let people live how they want to and determine their own future. Kobe, thank you so much. I, I think that perspective that you're talking about it's so critical. I mean, in the chat, we're getting all sorts of questions about, you know, I've heard that things were really bad there. I've heard that the situation is not great. And we have to remember who is the cause of the suffering of the Syrian people. And the reality is it's U.S. imperialism. It's the sanctions. It's the wars. It's the occupations. That is the violence of the oppressor in the situation. And that's ultimately, you know, what we especially have to point the finger at. It's not saying that, you know, everything that this government does is perfect, you know, in in Syria or going into some long defense about that. It's pointing at the real source of the problem. And it kind of parallels the situation in Palestine. And we talk about the real source of the problem is Zionism and imperialism and settler colonialism. It's not what Hamas is doing to defend itself, right? So it's, it's pointing the finger at the oppressor. And that's what we need to do here. And, it, and if we don't kind of deprogram that, we're just going to continue to side with the colonizers. I, I want to hear from a couple more folks. Wyatt, I'd like to talk with you a little bit next. I, I read your article in Fight Back. It was incredible as well. Uh, you wrote about the Palestinian refugee camp called Yarmouk. You called what the right-wing militias did in Syria a, quote, second Nakba. I mean, we just commemorated the 70th anniversary of the, the Nakba recently. But the, what you're talking about is the second Nakba in Syria. Can you discuss what you saw in Yarmouk? And can you also connect the Palestinian struggle and the struggle of the Syrian people? Yeah. Again, thanks, Scott and IAC for having me on here. And thank you, Johnny and Kobe, for your excellent remarks, which I agree with. So we traveled to Yarmouk, which is a neighborhood in Damascus. It was founded in 1948 after the the original Nakba, which was, of course, the... um, violent ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians from 1948 Palestine by Zionist militias. So hundreds of thousands of Palestinians made their way to Damascus, where the Yarmouk camp was founded. And it's called a refugee camp, but that is sort of a misnomer because, and we saw this while we were there, it's part of the city. It's got modern apartment buildings. At least before the war, you know, it it was a thriving, vibrant neighborhood with businesses and banks, hospitals, schools, and so on. And in fact, it was known throughout the Palestinian diaspora, um, residents told us, as a capital of the diaspora, both politically and economically. And um, in many ways, the, the Palestinians in Syria were treated as equals to Syrian citizens. And that's in contrast to places like Lebanon, where Palestinians are still restricted to working certain jobs and, you know, they have to work for Lebanese nationals, whereas in Syria, Palestinians get the same free health care and education as Syrians. They can own property. They can own their own businesses. And that's all still true. But unfortunately, what took place at Yarmouk, where hundreds of thousands of Palestinians lived alongside Syrians, over the course of the, the war in Syria, you know, I, I didn't come up with the term second Nakba. That's what Palestinians we spoke with called it. So I'll try to sum it up in a nutshell. It was, it's, you know, it was a long, complicated, messy, almost a six-year conflict in the camp. But essentially, the camp had a history of, of autonomy that the Syrian government respected for Palestinians. So as the war broke out across Syria, Palestinian groups wanted to stay out of it. And then uh, likewise, the, the government, the Syrian government, you know, had this history of kind of staying out of the affairs of the Palestinians who lived there politically. But like elsewhere in Syria, there were provocations, there were attacks, assassinations took place against certain of the different political factions inside the, the camp. Initially, the Syrian government tried to stay out of it. But as the security situation deteriorated, both in the camp and across the whole country in 2012, different armed groups 
militia groups, some of them funded by, you know, as Johnny and others have pointed out, some of them funded by the U.S. or by Turkey or Saudi Arabia and Qatar. They actually infiltrated the camp. And they had a reason for doing that, which in the geography of Damascus, Yarmouk is close to the city center. It's, it's close to major government institutions and the, the, the city center. And that was always kind of one of the main objectives of the different factions trying to enact regime change in Syria was, was to take Damascus. So for them, Yarmouk, which is also a very densely built up neighborhood, it was, it was very strategic location for them to try to take. And so when that happened and there was fighting, they didn't, it didn't go without a fight. And actually, I should mention the camp never completely fell, but much of the camp fell to the terrorist groups. And it led to a situation in some ways that was much like a lot of other places in Syria, where contrary to what the Western media reports as Assad callously murdering his own people, what actually took place was the government encouraged civilians to leave. The vast majority of them did so. And that was a great tragedy. That was the second Nakba that was referred to, was that hundreds of thousands of people became refugees again. But then over years of protracted, not just fighting, but also negotiations, eventually the camp was liberated by Palestinians with the support of the Syrian government, as well as some of the Palestinian leadership uh, internationally and UN aid groups. And so what we saw there... Unlike Israel or the United States, who just level every single building in sight, or they charge in guns blazing, breaking into people's homes, into civilians' houses, and, and just wreaking havoc, the Palestinian forces who liberated the camp waged a careful fight, block by block, mostly small arms. And eventually, you know, the camp was liberated because finally, after years and years of these negotiations, the terrorist groups agreed to be evacuated on Syrian government buses to the countryside. And so now people are moving back in. It's a slow process. A lot of the buildings have to be evaluated by engineers to make sure they're structurally sound. And the government is ready to begin rebuilding the infrastructure for electricity and water and whatnot. So unlike the original Nakba, the people of the camp do have the right of return, and they are slowly but surely returning. But to get to the second part of the question, obviously, the Palestinians we spoke to, their struggle doesn't end there because they want to go home to Palestine. And virtually everyone we spoke to in Syria, Syrians and Palestinians, from government officials to ordinary workers, connected the struggle of Syria to the struggle of Palestine. They said that for them, these issues aren't separate. It's, it's part of the national heritage of Syria is, is the struggle for Palestine. And let's not forget that part of Syria remains this day occupied by the Zionists in the Golan Heights. But beyond that, you can sort of situate what happened at Yarmouk to a long war that both Israel and the West have been fighting against Palestinian refugee camps across the whole region, what happened at the Sabran Shatila massacre in 1982 in Lebanon is the most obvious example, because for the imperialists, it's not just about cleansing the Palestinians from the territory that they call Israel. It's not just about defeating the resistance in Gaza or in the West Bank. It's about dispersing and defeating and destroying the Palestinian struggle across the world. So for them, it seems clear that Yarmouk was a golden opportunity for them to do that. And the liberation of Yarmouk by the Palestinians with the support of the Syrian government has helped. Like I said, when we were there, we saw the beginnings of of people returning to Yarmouk. And hopefully, not too far off from now, it will be restored to its centrality in the diaspora for Palestinians in the struggle. Thank you, Wyatt. Uh, very, very fascinating. I think a lot of people are noticed are saying in the chat that they're learning a lot, <laughs> and, and and definitely check out Wyatt's article. I mean, as the whole world has come to focus on the Palestinian struggle, people are learning ever more of the complicated and, and other facets of it. And uh, you know, of course, we look forward to the day when the Palestinian people finally assert their right to return to their homeland. Very exciting. Real quick, I'm going to get Ted in here. 
Ted, in your delegation's findings, you wrote, it is the unanimous conclusion of the undersigned representatives of the international delegation to the 2021 Syrian presidential election, the re-election of President Bashar al-Assad of the Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party and the National Progressive Front is the legitimate democratic expression of the Syrian people. What is the relationship between national self-determination of, de- of defending people's rights to, to elect their own president and fighting and defeating imperialism? And we've kind of touched on this multiple times, but let's hit it again. Why is it so hard for people in, in the empire to understand that Assad is the person that the Syrian people want to run their country? Why is that so hard for, for people in the West? I'm really glad that I get this question because I think it's it's critically important. And national self-determination, the national question is central to our analysis, right? It's central to understanding global class war, as Sam Marcy laid out going back to the, the 1950s. The history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggle. The history of race and class struggle, of national oppression and class struggle is not secondary. It is intertwined inextricably with the struggle for national liberation of of people of a certain cultural, ethnic, regional background um, who have a united history to defend themselves by any means necessary and to determine their own futures and the way that their lives are governed. And it's also an important question because the 20th century taught us that socialist revolutions are tied to national liberation struggles. They're very, very successful. And our role is to bring a revolutionary class consciousness to the working class, to national movements, to the movements of identity and oppression. But our role is really also to understand and emphasize the interconnectedness of these issues. We can't be revolutionary socialists without always emphasizing these questions and and we have to be dialectical about it. We have to investigate a system and study its internal contradictions. And like we heard from Johnny, an understanding of the Syrian state would lead you to understand that the multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious character of Syria is central to its functioning and to its survival. But there is a lot of effort these days and for the last decade being put into diverting attention from this or confusing our understanding of national self-determination and carving up Syria into segregated ethnographic enclaves is an imperialist tactic. We saw this in Iraq. President Biden was an architect of this racist imperialist strategy. But these separatist efforts, and I'm glad that somebody mentioned this in the chat, somebody asked about the so-called area of Rojava. That's become a very big meme for people on the online left, the Western left. But you have to ask these people who are calling for the overthrow of a sovereign government because they read something online about the Kurds. Ask them about the right of self-determination for the Assyrians or the Armenians or the Yazidis. Ask them about the protection of religious groups in Syria like the Druze and the Alawis and the the, uh, Jewish community, the Greek Orthodox. Why is it that the same people calling for the overthrow of the Syrian government don't talk about these groups? They don't talk about the Syrian state's protection of their rights and identities, and that the Syrian state considers the mosaic of multi-ethnic, multi-religious society like theirs is an asset, not a liability. It is an asset. It is part of their strength. You know, just today, on June 3rd, today, in El Malakia, with the, in Kurdish, it's uh, Derek. It's an, an Assyrian activist named Hussam Akas was abducted by the YPG, an anti-government ethno-nationalist Kurdish militia, is armed and funded by the Pentagon. This kidnapping couldn't have taken place if it weren't for the cooperation of militant groups, the so-called Syrian Democratic Forces, the anti-government militia armed and funded by the Pentagon. You know, ask them if they know that in Derek, where this kidnapping took place in Al-Hasaka, over a million people are experiencing water scarcity because of the combined catastrophe of U.S. sanctions and the U.S.-Turkish military occupation. But beyond that, you know, even beyond what the Syrian state does to protect these rights, there's something I think deeply racist and deeply solipsistic about this attitude towards Syria that we've seen being promoted in U.S. media. And it's a problem on the left, too. And that's this sort of means testing of who we're going to support as internationalists. No one is going to be able to say that, oh, because Alex Saab was a businessman, oh, we're not going to protect him from false arrest and kidnapping because we only do that for revolutionary socialists or anarchists or whatever. 
why are we setting parameters on anti-imperialist solidarity? We can't just get out of bed when it's socialist countries that are under attack or, or worker states in our conception. You know, whenever empire is targeting a people, that's where we need to send our solidarity. Otherwise, it's not anti-imperialism. It's liberalism dressed up in, in radical language. Like, oh, the, the U.S. Marines are occupying your oil fields. Are they, are they nationalized under a worker state? Oh, okay, well, then we're not going to... Like, that's not, that can't be how it works. There are 39 countries under U.S. sanctions, 40 if you count the nation of Puerto Rico. There are at least 1,000 U.S. military bases around the world, and those are just the ones we know of, including countries that the U.S. is currently blockading and sanctioning, like Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. A third of the population of the planet, one in three human beings, is sanctioned by the U.S. So we can't just decide whether people are worthy of our solidarity. I think that is chauvinism. It's imperialist Western chauvinism. And one of the things that I think is very dangerous about some of the Western journalists that we've seen is that it's very easy to call for the overthrow of governments and the overthrow of states in countries that you don't live in. You don't have to be a revolutionary in your own country, right? Because that would be a lot of work. That would mean working with the oppressed people in your neighborhood some of whom might not have perfect opinions. That would mean you have to dedicate your time and your resources and your blood and your sweat and your sleep to an actual movement and not just tweet about it. You have to put yourself on the street in solidarity with the people who you claim to represent. It might mean getting beaten up or tear gassed or pepper sprayed or traumatized. And it might mean laying down your life to overthrow the brutal white supremacist empire that you, you live under, like we do. But it's much easier to, to be a revolutionary for someone else, right? In someone else's country where you aren't the one risking your life, where your family isn't at risk of being displaced or hurt or killed, where it's not your water infrastructure, it's there are not your roads, it's not your schools, it's not your hospitals. And you can feel like a revolutionary and overthrow a government without any of the hard work of building a new politically pure worker state in its place. You can be an investigative reporter and talk about how bad the government is without ever leaving your apartment. You know, so you call for no-fly zones and airstrikes and arming and funding militias in the country. And you don't know who they are, but they have democratic or free right there in the name. So it must be good, right? You get the picture. That's, I think that's chauvinism. And nothing has made that more clear than visiting Syria and speaking to Syrians. And I'm extremely grateful to Johnny Achi and to Paul LaRudy and to all the delegates that were with us. Those are all things that you know consciously in your head. But visiting Syria, I know it in my heart and soul now. And I, I think that's one of the most important things that I learned while I was there. Lenin, Vladimir Lenin said, the socialist of another country cannot expose the government and bourgeoisie of a country at war with his own nation. Not only because he doesn't know that country's language and history and specific features, but also because such exposure is part of imperialist intrigue. It's not an internationalist duty. And there's been a lot of imperialist intrigue about the war in Syria, um, the war on Syria. But I'll leave it at that for now. Thanks. That was wonderful, Ted. Thank you so much. I, I think speaking to the panelists, you know, this is an incredible journey that you were able to participate in. I know you've written a bit. I know you're, this is kind of a, an event to talk. But I really hope you get to keep finding ways to share this powerful experience with as many people as possible. I think if Paul Rudy in the comments is saying, you know, learning about this and exposing the crimes of the empire is a big part of our duty. And we really need to make sure that we continue to do that in as many ways as possible. From my experience, I got to do a great follow-up event, you know, the UN with Ramsey Clark, who was a legend. And he was sharing his numerous different experiences, you know, right there at the Umayyad Square. I mean, <laughs> and talking about that, just the profound many thousand years of history that are under direct threat by U.S. missiles and U.S. wars. So there's so much to be said, and, and I'm glad that you are getting this short chance, and I really hope you get a longer chance sometime soon. Johnny, real quick, I, I'm going to get to one more question for everybody, but Johnny, real quick, you were one of the many of the people who actually recorded a message for this event while you were in Damascus. Can you tell us a little bit what it was like Ramsey Clark, and why should people pay honor to, to him? Just to tell you briefly, uh, I met Ramsey Clark in 2013. I was in Syria, not planning to have a delegation come to Syria. 
when I was in Syria on August 20th, uh, we were waiting for the UN inspection team to do an investigation in Khan al-Asr. Long story. Anyway, the next morning, another attack happened in Ghouta. Such a fabricated thing. We're waiting four months for the United Nations team that we called on to come in. Then the next morning, the attack happened. And then the, the drums of wars were just sounding like it's going to be imminent. I called Sarah. I said, you know, Sarah, you guys will always talk about fighting imperialism. Be there for Syria. I think it's time. Can you guys come down? I need Ramsey to be here. And within a day, she said, yes, we're coming. Three days later, they're on Beirut. I picked them up. We came to Damascus. I met Ramsey. He was 82 at the time. And in two days, he was able to come to Syria knowing there's a war on Syria. They're going to be bombing Syria. And he needed to take a stance against imperialism. We went to camp on Mount Kasyun, which is uh, from the, the delegation will tell you. It's a beautiful hills in Damascus. Obviously, that's where all the satellite, because it's the highest point. And it would have been the first attack, first site of attack. We went up there to Kasyun. There was a youth, about three, 400 younger people, have camping out under a campaign called Over Our Dead Body, Fawqa Ajsaduna in Arabic. A campaign saying, we know you're going to attack this site first. Go ahead and kill us all. We camped one night there with Ramzi, and me and him got to talk a lot the whole week. I got to know him so well. But he was looking at this youth, and he said, Johnny, these people will never be defeated. Dancing singing national anthem, knowing that the attack is imminent, could happen any minute. He spent the week in Syria. His support to Syria at that moment could not have come at a better time. To be in his presence and to hear what he has to say, this man was was a giant, bigger than life. Uh, we're going to miss him dearly. Syria will miss him truly a lot. He was uh, such a great friend of Syria and, and all the resisted people around the world. I have one more question for everybody. And I want actually everybody to chime in on this too as we kind of wrap up here tonight. So while you were gone, uh, there was the anniversary of George Floyd's murder by the police, which took place. And we've seen a lot of an intensifying class struggle here, you know, particularly related to struggling against racist state violence. How can we connect that to what's going on in Syria? And, and more generally, why is this such a critical issue that people need to understand? It's a struggle. You know, we're being oppressed by the same enemy, pretty much. Uh, whether you're, you you live in the United States, if you, if you don't follow the empire, if, if you don't kneel to the empire, you, you're going to be treated bad. Same thing in Syria. So, so it doesn't matter where you're at in the world. You know, you got to be standing together. And that's why we have a lot of hope in the, in, in the American public. Uh, the guy saw people love Americans in Syria. They love, they adore the people of Americans because they know this is not, they have nothing to do with the foreign policy. So I think Syrians and Americans need to be united against the, the empire at all times. Thanks, Johnny. I agree with what Johnny said. You know, it's about solidarity. It's about, you know, materially, all these countries that we've been talking about as being responsible for the destruction in Syria, they all help each other. The, the fact that tear gas canisters that are used on protesters in the U.S. are the same ones being used against the protesters in Palestine. A lot of police departments in the U.S. are trained by the IDF. And of course, Israel is propped up as a lot of reactionary governments are propped up by U.S. tax dollars. So if you're an American, that's what's being done with your money, you know, in, in your name these people are being terrorized around the world. And I also answered a question in the, in the Q&A thing about anti-Blackness. And, you know, I, I want to say I experienced zero anti-Blackness in Syria. I saw zero anti-Blackness in Syria. But I did experience quite a bit in Lebanon. Up, you know, granted, I was there for a very short amount of time. But racism, just like any other ideology or any other idea, it doesn't just pop into people's heads out of nowhere doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's propagated by certain people for certain reasons. And in Lebanon, there's a very strong reactionary movement. There's a very strong political base of reaction and of racism. So that's, that's why there's, there's this anti-blackness in, in Lebanon that isn't there in Syria, because those interests, those imperialist interests are not there in, in Syria. So that's why you have all these you know, hundreds of thousands of Africans basically in indentured servitude in Lebanon and not in Syria. So what I'm saying is a win against imperialism anywhere is a win against imperialism everywhere. So a win against imperialism in Syria is also 
a win for you know the working class and for oppressed people in the U.S. and in Africa and in Asia, um, Latin America and the Caribbean. Couldn't have said it better. Thanks, Kobe. I'll keep it quick. What happened in Syria, what the imperialists did there was unprecedented in terms of just how devious the propaganda was and how, how frankly, how crafty the imperialists were in trying to make their, their attack on Syria look like something else. And I think that's something that the movements against repression and racism uh, in the United States can learn from. In fact, here in Minneapolis just today, the powers that be attempted to clear George Floyd Square, where Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd last year and has been held by the people ever since and blocked closed to traffic. And they didn't do it with the police. They did it with some proxy group that they cooked up so that they could claim that this was a community-led attempt to force everyone out of George Floyd Square. And you can see a lot of parallels between that and Syria, where they they have their proxy groups, they have their mercenaries, and it's the same here. They pay people to say, do what they want if they don't want to take credit for it for whatever reason. Very true. We saw that repeatedly, especially in the uprisings last year. And it's, yeah, (laughs) we're learning so much about the different tactics they're using. But it's what we see overall, those the same policies, the same tactics, the same strategies that they're used on on people all over the world are also used here. All right, Ted? Yeah, thanks, everybody. This has been such a great discussion. You know, I spoke about the national question. The most important question of national liberation in the U.S. is Black liberation and indigenous liberation. And I'm really glad that Monica is, is uh, Monica Moorhead is in the chat. Comrade Monica taught me so much about what I know about this question. And so many Syrians we talked to mentioned George Floyd by name. They mentioned the murder of George Floyd when explaining to us that they know that the U.S. state, the U.S. government, and the U.S. people are not the same entity. And One thing that was very clear as well, like Johnny said, Syrian people know who their enemy is. And I think we need to know who our enemies are here as well. It happens to be the same people, the billionaires and the bosses and the bankers. And I just saw somebody in the chat say, are they, they're crafty. Yeah, they're very crafty. The war on Syria is one of the most sophisticated and evil operations that has happened in our lifetimes, but they're not invincible. And maybe Syria is the turning point. We'll see. Well, thanks, comrades. This is an incredible discussion. It will be shared on Facebook and on YouTube and on many different platforms. But please, you know, make sure to share these recordings, share this information. We're taking on a very advanced form of warfare and we're doing our best to spread the truth. And I think tonight was a real contribution. And I really appreciate everyone's time. And if you need more information, you can go to our website, which is iacenter.org. And if you like our work, you can uh, make a donation there on our website to help keep, you know, keep these delegations going, keep things happening. But again, you know, just thanks everyone for, for tuning in. And let's say long live the Syrian people, victory to Syria, victory to Palestine, and workers of the world and workers in the press of the world unite. We're going to win. Thanks, everyone.